Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. But last week, I did share with you one of the theories of religion that I had the opportunity to study in my undergraduate religious studies, and that was of Durkheim and how he believed that because of his sociological underpinnings that religion really helped people to recognize that community itself is sacred. And today, I want to share with you a religious theory that you might not be aware of, although I believe it will resonate as deeply with you as it resonates with me, and that has actually, in many ways, transformed the landscape of religious scholarship in academia. And that is that work of Mercia Eliade. He <coughs> was born in Bucharest in 1907, and he was a very bright young man. By the age of 18, he had published over 100 articles. He continued his studies, and by the 1950s, he was lecturing at the University of Chicago as a professor. And at that time, there were only three significant professorships in religion within the United States of America. But 20 years later, there were 30, and half of those were held by his students. And since that time, Religious studies have continued to grow, modestly, but they have continued. In fact, when I graduated with my religious studies degree, there were only 26 of us that graduated with religious studies degrees, although only several of us were intending to go on to become clergy. So religious studies are the way in which we look at religion, how it functions, and not from a spiritual direction, but from a intellectual one and sometimes a very practical one, how religion is affecting the world and how world affects religion. Now, the problem with most religious studies before Eliade was that people were reductionists when it came to religion. In fact, this is very common. Uh, as you know, e each of the theories that I mentioned briefly last week all reduce religion to some kind of manifestation of some other academic pursuit. For instance, Sigmund Freud, who is, of course, one of the founding movements within psychology, believed that it was a function of people trying to put their psychological needs into form and function. Then there's Karl Marx, who, of course, was much more on the political side of that. And so Marx believed that it was an outpouring of political control, that that's how it worked as an opiate of the masses. And even Durkheim, as I mentioned, believed that religion was a sociological function. And there are plenty of other people who will argue that it's anthropological, that in some ways maybe it is sociological or psychological, but not necessarily in the ways outlined by Freud or Durkheim. But Eliade rejected this entirely. He said religion is an anomaly in and of itself. In fact, he's able to point at what he calls phenomenology, it's vital, he said, to compare and study what religions present. And if you were going to reduce anything, it's that there seems to be this common pursuit to identify, to name, to quantify, and to perpetuate the encounter with what he calls the sacred. 
Eliade believed that the world could be divided into two different realms. And sometimes those boundaries seemed very fixed and firm, and sometimes they had a lot more malleable movement between the two, the sacred and the profane. Now, before you start thinking profane profanity, that's not where we're going. Profane, the Latin root, actually goes back to what it meant to be outside the temple. So sacred is what happens within holy space, space that is either dedicated specifically to the worship of the divine or to a god or a pantheon of gods. And then the profane is what happens outside of that realm. So for instance, this room that we are currently occupying, and some of you are occupying by virtue of live streaming, is sacred. Not only is this a place where we do sacred things, but at the completion of the construction of this room, it was consecrated, and through the invocation of God's name in prayer, God allowed a piece of God's self to dwell here all the time, so that even when no one else is present, a piece of God's self remains here. This room is literally sacred. Now that's not to say that sacred things can't happen in the fellowship hall or in one of the classrooms where the preschool currently resides, but that here is specifically dedicated to sacred things, prayer, worship, praise, study, and oftentimes the celebration of such life events like baptism or marriage and the celebration of death and resurrection. So in this space, we recognize the sacredness of that. And then in the profane, it's what happens outside that is not specifically dedicated to the worship of God, or in our case, the celebration of the grace of Jesus Christ. But perhaps you recognized, even in yourself, that the conversation about the sacred and the profane really came to head in the pandemic. So back in March of 2020, our bishop immediately told us that we had to cease meeting in person because the pandemic was really starting to flare. And that was before we knew how long we would have to cease meeting in person. And when that happened, most of us were willing to triage a little bit through technology or wait until we didn't need the technology. But what ended up happening was that over time, we realized that the duration was going to be a lot longer than anyone could have anticipated. I thought, at most, we'll have to lock down for two months and then we'll get back to normal. Ha ha, I was wrong. Instead, what we discovered is that over time, we had to triage much longer than we thought we would with technology. And then, when we finally had the opportunity to plan to try to come back in person, we had to wrestle with some differences in how people understand the sacred and the profane. The everyday and the common versus the supernatural, the extraordinary, and the momentous. And what we found is that some people wanted to come back in person, but they were very clear. It had to be in here. We had to be in this room. This is where we worship. This is our sacred space. They didn't want to be in the parking lot. They didn't want to be in a gymnasium somewhere. They didn't want to be in a cafeteria. They wanted to be in the sacred space of the sanctuary. And that's understandable. Other people were going, it's more important that we simply meet. That's more important. The where is not as important. What you're hearing expressed is a difference in the understanding and the importance to each person in the sacred and the profane. So for people who have a very clearly delineated idea of the sacred, they want to see clerical vestments. They want to see the liturgy. They want to see those things that are very specific to the sacred worship of our God. And that provides comfort. It provides order. It provides a continuity and a connection to tradition and to other communities of Christians that have existed through the ages. And that's a good and joyful thing. For others, their understanding is a little bit more fluid. 
They probably don't mind seeing clergy in street clothes. They probably don't have the same issue with the need for the, the very selective order of worship. They're much more malleable about time and space. But for those of us who have a very strong center and grounding in the sacred, then for us, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is a holy time, is it not? That is the time. And we want to be where we know we're supposed to be, where we know we're supposed to be, and we want to do the things that we feel are necessary to honor the sacred. So in the midst of the pandemic, we had a lot of people having conversations, and I heard a lot of people go, I don't understand what the difference is. What is the problem? But because of the work of Mercea Eliade, I was able to say, for some people, the distinction between the sacred and the profane is driving their need to be in this space. And that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we have to be attuned to that. Some people were very flexible. I don't have to go back in the sanctuary. We never have to go back in the sanctuary. And other people were like, what is wrong with you? Of course we have to get back into the sanctuary. In fact, we should be back in the sanctuary yesterday. And it's the struggle between those two viewpoints and viewpoints in between. So when we look at religion and we start to think about how it functions for us as Christians, we're simultaneously looking on two different levels. We're looking as individuals and individual disciples, persons, but we're also looking collectively because as Durkheim pointed out, we are a community and the community is making decisions all the time about what is sacred and what is profane. So this is a perfect opportunity to talk about Halloween. Now, I love Halloween. I love any excuse to dress up. And in fact, I don't usually need an excuse to dress up if you've seen me around town. But I enjoy that. What I really enjoy about Halloween is watching other people dress up. I love watching the kids dress up. I love them telling me how they picked who they're going to be. And uh, one kid was great. One kid, I said, what are you going to be? And he's like, I'm going to be whatever costume my mother bought me. Amen to that kid. That's a good kid. But we recognize that it's a moment to kind of play, to become childlike, which is something that Jesus encourages us to do. And so I like watching that. I don't necessarily like the I have to go buy a whole bunch of candy and then worry about eating it later, but I enjoy the opportunity of seeing people become childlike and play. And sometimes adults get in it, and that's extra fun for me to see that happen. But you are probably aware that over the course of time, Christianity has become a little hostile to Halloween. You might have noticed that. I myself am not, and not all Christians are hostile to it. But I'd like to give you an example of how the sacred and profane is influencing us today, especially around Halloween. You might not be aware that Halloween, the celebration of All Hallows' Eve, is actually tied to the celebration of the saints. And we will celebrate All Saints Sunday next Sunday. But they are tied together. There was actually a medieval Christian tradition of the poor going to the homes of the wealthy and there, as they offered prayers and blessings upon that household, the owners of the home reciprocated by giving those that came food and beer. It was Europe. But you can imagine that in the changing of the seasons, which Halloween arrives at, and it's gotten very cold recently, that sometimes offering beer was a way of not only warming the heart, but also warming the body. And it was also in a socially acceptable drink at the time. So in this exchange of offering prayers and blessings upon your household, you might bless the poor that show up with some form of food. You can see how this becomes more like trick-or-treating. You are probably aware that it's also tied to the Celtic festival of Samhain. 
And that was marking the change in the seasons, it's, uh, but not everything about Halloween is Celtic. In fact, people were celebrating in Europe way outside of Ireland. And so what we find is that they were celebrating and doing things at night, not because night is when evil things happen, but because they were actually keeping to a lunar calendar, as our Israelite and Judaic siblings in faith do. They are on a lunar calendar because in the first creation story in Genesis, it says there was evening and morning the first day. It began with evening. It wasn't until the Greco-Roman calendar that we switched to solar days, where the day begins when the sun rises. So as they are, are focusing on a lunar calendar, their events begin when the sun sets because that's the beginning of the new day. And so that kind of changes how we think about things slightly. But let's get a little bit more into it. Do you know that it wasn't until the 1960s in this country that people started to associate Halloween with devil worship and associating Halloween as being anti-Christian? Now, Halloween is not a Christian holiday. It's not a liturgical holiday. It's not something where we're, everything liturgical has to do with Jesus. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus overtly, but does that make it bad? Not necessarily. Doesn't necessarily make it great either. So we have to discern whether or not it's good. But in the 1960s, you started to have some Christians question whether or not it's okay to practice anything that doesn't have to do with Jesus. That's why you see, in that same time, the rise of Thanksgiving worship services. Thanksgiving is not a Christian holiday either, but a lot of Christians like Thanksgiving, and so we try to find a way to make sure that we're still being good Christians and yet enjoying this holiday that arose actually out of a celebration of a historical event rather than something that happens within the church. But in 1972, things really changed for Christianity and Halloween. And would you like to know who's responsible for that shift? Virginia's own Reverend Jerry Falwell. Of course. <laughs> Jerry Falwell decided that Halloween was going to be an opportunity. And so he started to preach about repentance and that that was going to be the visual example of why people needed to be saved. In fact, his church, the Thomas Road Baptist Church, which is still alive and going in Lynchburg, right over the mountain, started what they called Scaremore. Scaremore was an interactive haunted house, not the kind where there's ghosts and witches and they jump out at you, but instead it depicted the circles of hell and what would happen if you didn't repent and embrace Jesus. And so people would be invited to go into this and to be scared into salvation, which is not Methodist in the slightest. We don't believe in scaring you into Jesus. But there are other Christians that feel a little bit more able to lean in that direction. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that Jerry added his power and his authority and his voice to that distinction. Now, the fact is that there's lots of things that you and I do that don't have anything to do with Jesus. Does that make them bad? No, it doesn't make them bad. It doesn't necessarily make them good for us either. That's where we have to discern. But for instance, I mentioned already Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving is not a liturgical holiday, but it happens to be one of my favorite holidays. And for me, it becomes very sacred, not because I have a worship service, but actually because I don't. Thanksgiving is the only holiday that I have off and my family has off. I don't know if you know this, but I work on Christmas and Easter, and those are the largest chunks of time off that my son has from school. And so while he is off from school and open for a vacation, I am not. The only time that I can gather with him and my parents and my sister and her husband 
and gather around the table and really not have to worry if I've got to make the seven o'clock Christmas Eve service is Thanksgiving. It's the one day where I don't have to be in my priestly or my pastoral role. And when I'm gathered at that table with a meal that I didn't have to cook, which is especially sacred, <laughs> and enjoying the company of my family, it's in those moments that I find myself thanking God more than any other time. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. Thank you for giving me a Sabbath from all the wonderful things that I do enjoy. I love Christmas Eve worship, and I love Christmas Day worship, and I love Easter worship. But this is a moment where I actually just get to be a daughter or a mother or a sister, and I get to just be in that. And that's a really sacred time, too, because it is different from how I normally am. So even those moments that we might think are profane and common actually are sacred. Now, you'll hear a lot of people talk about profane as in the text that we heard from Exodus, the idea that you are profaning by detracting from or tearing down or blaspheming. A lot of Christians use profane in that way. And a lot of us tie it to the English word profanity, which is actually the language of the common people. You didn't want to talk like common people and use those words that we call profanity. But in the scripture today, what you heard was there was an expectation of where the priesthood would eat the offerings. That's right. They didn't have money, and so they were given gifts, and those offerings were used in one of two ways. They were either used as burnt offerings to alleviate the guilt of sin and therefore to give people the opportunity to be reconciled to God and one another, or they were offerings of well-being. Thank you, God, for this bountiful harvest that we had. We have more than enough to feed our family and also to make a profit to help us to continue forward. And so they would give the first fruits of that, and they would bring it to God as an offering of well-being. They didn't destroy the offering of well-being. That went to the priesthood to sustain them and their families. But what you end up finding out is that in this story, Aaron's sons did the wrong thing. They took the sacred offering out of the sacred space and ate it in a profane space, and therefore they tainted the offering. And that is a real clear delineation between where the line is. It's a sacred offering. It had to be consumed in sacred space. And they took it out and ate it out in the middle of nowhere. And that was not good. And then Aaron had to wrestle with, so if I had eaten it today in here, we would have been good? Yes, we would have been fine. Okay, so now we know better next time. Don't take the holy food out into the profane area. And don't bring <laughs> profane food into the holy area. That was how they came to understand where they would consume the offerings. And they could actually bring their families to a certain extent to safe sacred places and consume things there as well. But there's other things that we don't always consider. So for instance, you might have been uh, puzzled at the last verse, which said that you're not supposed to build the altar way up high on steps because you will uncover <laughs> your nakedness, right? And again, they wore robes very much like I'm wearing, but this was before the proliferation of undergarments. So if we have really high steps, you could be mooning God or practitioners. That's not good. You don't want to do that. So it's, there's practical reason why we keep to the sacred and the profane. The other practical reason is that sometimes if you don't stay aware of the sacred, you will lean into profane just because that's the inclination of human beings. We tend to make things like us, make things common, if we don't keep a very firm idea of what is holy and sacred. So that's why there are explicit prohibitions against <coughs> gilding statues and creating silver idols. Now, for those of you who are fiscally conservative, you are all on board with that. Great. We'll save money. We won't, like, guild things. Great. Good idea. 
But other people feel the need to show that something is sacred by making it extra special visually. And so God said, don't do that, because if you start making things gilded, what happens is before long, you're like, well, why should it just be a really golden cross? Maybe we can like put a little image on here so that we can get a little more complicated. And God said, that's going to lead you down a bad path. That's how we get that golden calf thing. Which, by the way, there's nothing more insulting to our Lord than to decide to make God a baby cow. There has to be a better animal that we think embodies the might and the majesty of God than a baby cow. Sorry, Lord, we made you into veal. I'm not really sure what to do with that. So what we end up finding is that God says, don't do those things. There was even explicit prohibition against making an altar out of anything but earth. Just make, it's not about how fancy it is, says God. It's about the mode. It's about what you're accomplishing and what you're trying to do. The offering isn't about how pretty you can make it look. It's about what you are trying to do by making the offering. And so God knew that some people were not going to be happy with an earth altar because if it rains, there goes your altar. But God also knew that some people, again, they're going to lean into the profane. So God said, if you're going to make it out of stone, don't carve the stone because you start carving little things and next thing you know you're carving reliefs that make God look like us because we lean into that that's what we know that's what we see that's why God said just save yourselves the trouble and don't carve the altar no chisel stay safe but what we find more and more as we start to explore what is sacred to us is that in some ways what is sacred to us as an individual is not held to the same level of sacredness of the community that we're in. This is why you can go to different Methodist churches and worship will look completely different. I've told you before that my last church was what they call very high liturgical church. I am underdressed for worship in that church. We would have all had the very formal black Geneva gowns on. We would have had acolytes and crucifers wearing the black robes and the katas on top. We would have had a processional cross that was all very, very sacred and not normal for outside of the church. And so that congregation really wanted it to look so other, so sacred, that there would be no way that anybody could think that this was common, that it would be worthy of worshiping God. Now, there are other congregations where the clergy never wear vestments at all. They never process or have acolytes. And they're not really concerned with having some of the ornamentation or even the paraments that change with the liturgical year. That's just not where they find their sacred. But as Christians, we have to wrestle with where we find the sacred. Because unless we know where we find the sacred, we can't begin to figure out how we show the sacred to others. The weakness of a too strict sacred and profane is that we start thinking that God has to stay in here. Now, a part of God will always be in here, and hallelujah for that. But God was doing a new thing by changing our concepts of the sacred and profane by putting a piece of the sacred into this, which is profane. And that's precisely what happens at baptism, that we receive not only remission for sins, but a piece of God's self in the Holy Spirit resides within us forever. And you know how profane and common these vessels can get, but yet, at the end of the day, there is something holy within us. And we are being invited and encouraged and in some ways challenged to go out into the world and to reveal that holiness. 
So how do you show to the world something that is holy when all that the world can see and hear and experience is the profane? How do we do that? That's the struggle that every disciple wrestles with. For some of us, it's changing the way we talk to people. For some of us, it might be changing our vocabulary, not afraid to use those holy names of Jesus and Christ. For some of us, it's changing how we talk to people, talking to them as if they are Christ, to be revered, to be held in dignity, to share with them that they are beloved and of sacred worth. For others, it's how we act. It's not so much what we say, but it's how we act. Do we act with radical hospitality? Do we respond with radical kindness when we see someone who is struggling or in need or when someone shows us that they are searching for someone that will respond with them in compassion? These are the things that we struggle with as individual disciples, but we struggle with them as a church as well. What are we showing to the world as a congregation, as a body of Christ? Are we showing them that we do have an understanding that, yes, while we are in the midst of the sacred in our worship, that we are also charged with bringing the sacred out into the world, that we share grace and love and the gifts that we have received so that others might be blessed? This is the challenge that we wrestle with, individually and collectively. And every congregation, not just in the Methodist Church, but every congregation within Christianity has to wrestle with that because there are things that are not so sacred to me that might mean the world to somebody else. So for some of us, it means trying to figure out when we sacrifice our own comfort and our own understanding of the sacred so that someone else might step fully into theirs. There are plenty of times during the liturgical year that we sing a hymn that I'm not too keen on. Maybe it's because I don't really like the tune, or maybe it's because the, the theology is just off a little bit. But we sing them. And we sing them because I have learned from the position that I get to stand in that sometimes your faces change in a holy way when you sing certain songs. Some of us, while John was singing, were mouthing those words. We know those words. And we know those words because of people who were struggling and who were held in bondage found hope in that song. And Christianity has preserved their hope in that hymn. And we sing those hymns because they give us that hope. It's like through the lyrics and the message, the hope is still with us. And we sing those songs. Most of us couldn't even point out Gilead on a map, but we know that there is a balm in Gilead and it saves the sin-sick soul. And we know that because someone has decided to give verse to their divine experience. They had an encounter, they had a vision, they had a theophany, and somewhere in that encounter, they knew who God was and they needed to help others know. And so they wrote that song. They composed it with their lives, they sang it in their homes and in their churches, and it has become ours. Whether or not you fully appreciate where Gilead is or that Jesus is somehow now a metaphoric balm, whether or not you even like that song altogether, you can come to appreciate why it is part of our canon. And the same is said for other songs. There are other songs that don't have the greatest theology in them, which I really have to suffer through. 
Every time we sing something with bad theology, I try to refrain from grinding my teeth. But I can tell you that my teeth stop grinding when I can look out and see that maybe for the only time in a worship service, someone is having that moment. They are having the divine encounter. And for me, that always happened at my last church when we ever, whenever we sang Lord of the Dance. Now, I already told you that this was a very high liturgical church. Lord of the Dance is not a high liturgical song. So when you're closing out a worship service that's been all very high and holy and mighty, and all of a sudden you're like, I am the Lord of the Dance, said he, it's a little incongruent. And so you would sing it, and you'd be like, this just kind of feels a little strange. But I would look out, and I could see Mary. And Mary was almost 90 years old. And Mary loved that hymn. That was the hymn that they sang at her confirmation retreat. That is the hymn that they sang the day that she was confirmed. That was the hymn that she sang that took her back to a place where she knew who the Lord of the dance was. And she knew that he danced for her. And I could suffer through the incongruity of singing that hymn in that church, in that context, because I could look at Mary and I knew that she was having a Jesus moment. And her Jesus moment was more important than my theological congruity. And we do that. There was another woman at that church that I often had a lot of interaction with because I was in charge of our ministry to our homebounds. We called it our homebound ministry. And there was a woman named Jean. And Jean was pushed, she was in her 80s. And Jean had started to show the first signs of dementia, or maybe not even the first signs of dementia, and Jean walked with a cane. And Jean had a pew. You ever known anybody that had a pew? They got a pew. And not just a pew, they got a, like a seat in the pew. And woe be it to you if you sit in their pew. And so Jean had a pew. It was about four back from the back. And she liked to be right on the aisle because, again, this was a high liturgical church, and we processed and recessed. And she sat on my side of the aisle because I was the associate pastor and senior pastor sat on the pulpit side. And every time I came in and every time I went out, Jean would reach her hand out and hold mine. I mean, briefly, because I'm processing and recessing. But Jean wanted to have that connection. Well, one Sunday, Jean came in, and I was in the front of the church, and Jean came in, and there was somebody sitting in Jean's pew. And Jean walked over, and she picked up that cane, and she held it up, and I said, Jean, no! <laughs> no! She looked at me, and she said, he's sitting in my pew. Well, I didn't know that Jesus had assigned pews that day, but yes. And I said, Jean, maybe Jesus wants you to meet him. Maybe Jesus wants you to show him why you come every Sunday and sit in that pew. She didn't buy that. But she did allow him to scoot over, and fortunately, he could scoot over, and Jean was very petite, so she could sit next to him. And I kept watch the entire time of that worship service, and I watched as slowly they talked a little bit, you know, in between the, the, the play, you know, in between play, you can kind of talk a little bit. And as they passed the offering plate, they talked. And by the end, when we finished recessing, from the narthex, I looked in, and they were still talking. And what happened was, they sat together in that pew every day until one of them passed away. That seat was sacred to Jean. And for a moment, she thought that he had profaned her seat. But what she also discovered was that in the incidental profaning, God sent her a sacred connection. Our ability 
to look at something from both sides, the sacred and the profane, is to mature our faith to the point that we learn whether or not, is this about us or is this about something bigger? Where do we find the sacred? And where do we help others find the sacred in us? Jean was quite a character. And I have no doubt that if I had not intervened, she would have clocked that man. That would not have been sacred. That would have been very profane. But sometimes we are the voice that's crying out, wait, maybe something is happening that we don't yet see. Because do we not serve a God that is so big and so amazing, that as frightening as that possibility of our God is, there is something about God that fascinates us. That's what Moses discovered when he looked and he saw a bush that was burning but not consumed. He looked at the bush and was fascinated that something was abnormal about this bush. It was extraordinary. And when he leaned in to look at it further, that was when the voice of God came to him. It's those moments where we are fearful and yet fascinated. When we lean in, that we discover God speaking to us. And it's those moments when we choose, even when we are frightened, to lean into others, that we find not only is God speaking to us, but perhaps we become the conduit that allows God to speak to them. And that is where Mercia Eliade continues to bless Christians, by giving us an opportunity, a language, a metric, a rubric, of understanding that we are not all the same. And you would think that we could find more people the same if we have a binary choice between the sacred and the profane. But no, what he has given us is not the solution, but a tool to understand one another. So that the next time you're struggling with something and it's very important to you, and everybody else seems to be willing to set it aside, maybe that's the moment you go, this is really sacred to me. It doesn't seem like a lot, but when we do that, I can feel God, and I hope we won't get rid of that. And for others, they might go, you know, this doesn't feel very important to me, but clearly it's important to you. And I, can you tell me a little bit more why? What is it that's so important? Is it an experience? Is it the words? Is it the format? What is it that is so important so that we can preserve what really helps you to feel close to God? And you can't do that without conversation and relationship. And so Durkheim and Eliade have given us some great gifts. May we become a people who learn to navigate using these tools so that ultimately, as we continue to build God's kingdom here, we become a people who are more nimble, more agile, and more bold in helping to ensure that everyone discovers they have a place in God's house, in God's pews, and especially in God's heart. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.